Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. I invite you to turn into your Bible this Christmas Eve to Exodus chapter 40, the very last verses in that great book, verses 34 to 38 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. So in Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34, after Moses has finished the work. He has finished uh, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. He writes here, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it, by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. Remarkable. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this last little bit of Exodus. And we ask now, that You would make it to live inside of us. Help us to meet with You again. Meet with You again. Not just with one another, but with You. Not just out of habit, but worshipfully with You. Grant that we would see Your glory and rejoice in the glory we see. And that it would change our lives. It would become really the navigation system for all our living in this world, in this wilderness. So get glory for yourself. Grant us joy as you show it to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So once upon a time, in a faraway land, God walked among man, and man walked with God in the cool of the day, and all was right in the world. Only a rebellious serpent entered the equation, who through his deceit and his cunning was allowed to deceive man into sin and into disobedience and being swayed then into a demonic rebellion, man, though not without hope, suffered the the most dreadful consequence that we could suffer. It's easily the saddest sentence man has ever heard or ever received. The very end of Genesis chapter 3. There the Lord, whom man had only known as God and friend, it says, drove out the man, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. A lot of times we read that in Genesis and we think that's fantasy. It's not fantasy, it's history. And 
We've been trying to make our way back in ever since then. You've heard it said that God has put eternity into our hearts. That's true, and it's biblical. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart. But the verse actually goes on and says more. It adds this, that God's done this, put eternity into man's heart, yet so that man cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And so in truth, we're sort of this odd mixture. We, we long with all our hearts to dwell with God in truth. That's what every person wants. We long with all our hearts to dwell with God, but in ourselves, we don't know what that strange longing is or why it is or how to have it eternally met and then ultimately satisfied. It's only the light of grace that lets us in on the single solution to all of our spiritual unrest and irritation. And even still, it might be a little different than what we've learned to think if you've grown up in church or a Christian family. It's not just that we would go up to God one fine day, but that throughout history, all the way to the end of history, and then the beginning of eternity, God has come down to us. He's even put on flesh in Christ that He might indwell flesh you and me. And he does that in previewing, ultimately, the new creation for this fallen world to see. And our text this morning is a preview of that new creation. It's a preview of God coming down and tabernacling among us. Exodus ends, think about this, Exodus, this great book of Exodus, ends with God having made a way for Himself to dwell among His people moving forward. And his people then living, you heard this in the text, living in light or in sight of that. After all he's done, think about Exodus. We're, we're in Exodus 40. Okay? After all he's done for his people, that's the ultimate goal. God dwelling among his people, moving forward throughout the wilderness, into the promised land, and then seeing it. And living in light of it. That sound familiar? Okay. There is a way back in to God. Have you taken it? There is a life to live with God. Are you living it? Come with me to verses 34 and 35. Let's just focus first on Meeting the God who dwells among us. Meeting the God who dwells among us. And as we arrive, we find that the tent of meeting has just been finished and furnished. And so we have it in view. I should say, Jenny warned me this week, you need to talk slowly about these things, okay? It might not be familiar to everyone. We're in unfamiliar terrain, okay? So the tent of meeting. <laughs> is an earthly replica of a heavenly reality. Did you know that? Hebrews makes a really big deal out of this. Hebrews tells us that Moses patterned the tent on earth after blueprints that God had given to him that were designed to reflect God's heavenly dwelling place. Isn't that wild? So, as Eden was, so also the tent was like this heaven on earth. It was a shadow of things to come, even as it reflected realities that already and eternally were. So, it's with good reason that two-fifths of this great book of Exodus is consumed with the design and construction of the temple, the tent. 
And it's as we come to our verses that, take note of the terms here, you see this in verse 33, the work building the tent or the tabernacle has been what? Finished. Again, sound familiar? It is finished, okay? Chapter 40 carries this emphasis, how Moses finished all the work exactly as the Lord commanded him to do it. And verses 34 and 35 show that it's no exaggeration that Moses did that. It says, then, after he's finished the work, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in this way, the Lord commends the tent as His own. He's saying, this house is suitable for my glory and for my presence. As far as temporary housing goes, this is agreeable to what I've shown Moses. It's agreeable to my word. It's agreeable to my purpose, ultimately. It's agreeable to my glory. It is an adequate rendering of the current situation involving things above and things below, how God and man might peaceably coexist again. Deep breaths. I find it most beautiful that God would humble Himself in this way. That instead of distancing Himself from sinners, the one we will all meet one fine day. I hope it's a fine day. Who we all truly long to meet. As one will want to meet Him. He condescends, comes down. He condescends to be met by us and then made available to us. It's beautiful. Given the construction and the instruction and the circumstances of the tent of meeting, there is a divine chiropractor for the stiff-necked sinner. God is in His temple, and His people can know Him right there. But so then it's interesting in our passage, isn't it? In Exodus 33, you remember this from a week ago, Moses was able to be in the tent. But now, chapter 40, verse 35, Moses is put out of the tent, and it seems that he's unable to re-enter as he did before. Why is that? It was because before, the Lord only stood at the door. Do you remember that? He only stood at the door. He didn't go in. So Moses was able to be in there. He just stood at the door. Whereas now, God has entered in. And He's taken up residence within the tent. The finished tent with all of its furnishings has become the house of God. His glorious presence has filled that space. And as such, even Moses cannot get in to that space. Even this replica of God's dwelling place, this replica is too heavenly for a man like Moses to abide without taking the way that God had revealed to re-enter. And there's a word in that for us. It's a reminder of our native sinfulness. In it, don't we see a reenactment of the exile from Eden? They were put out of Eden, put out of the garden, put away from the presence of God. And that's what we're seeing here as well. Moses may be redeemed, he is redeemed, but Moses is not entirely rid of Adam. Not entirely rid of Adam. So we need to hear this morning that no one can abide in the presence of God, like this. No one can abide in heaven but the one of no sin. The one who has never sinned. 
in ourselves today. Not a single one of us would be able to stand in the presence of God and stay in the presence of God. And see, it's not just because our sins would put us out. It's also that our good works cannot atone for sin and get us back in. Again, who are we talking about here and what has He just done? We're talking about Moses. And on top of all that Moses has done, he's just finished this very tabernacle exactly according to the specs of the Word of God. Surely, if anyone's going to have an all-access pass into the tent of meeting, it's going to be Moses. Nope. Moses can't even get into the vapor or the shadow of things above. How much less are you and I going to be able to stand in heaven in and of ourselves? How terrible a thing then is this thing we call sin? And how inadequate, think Galatians, how inadequate, insufficient are our very best works to cover our sins so that we can go in. And how great is God? How glorious must heaven be? How needful is the grace of God? That brings us back in. We need to feel this. <laughs> this is what we're seeing in our passage. The one thing, one thing, your soul most desires is right in front of you. Moses is standing there. You see the glory of God in the tent. It's right in front of you, and there is not a thing you or I, or Moses, can do to eternally reconcile the two. An old church father, St. Ephraim the Syrian, wrote several uh, meditations on Genesis 2 and 3, which he called the hymns of paradise. And out of the gate, what he calls the way into Eden applies here as well. He calls that gate back into Eden the door all discerning. Right? Moses is standing there at the door of the tent. Can he get in? Can he stay in? The door all discerning. The gate of testing. The sifting gate is what he calls it. And what he means is what we've said. That the way into heaven, as it were, is a way that reveals Everyone who stands at its door. Now, we're speaking in types. We're in Exodus. But the fact that Moses cannot re-enter in himself says he can only re-enter upon the grace of another. So again, Ephraim says, it's true. Blessed is the one who yearns for paradise... But more so, blessed is the one for whom paradise yearns. Indeed, above all, he says, blessed is the one who was pierced. So that the sword guarding the way, the sword at the door, is removed. And the way of entry opened. He's getting at this. How can the exile return? How can the outcast get in? How can the sinner be welcomed into the presence of God by God? The answer is found. I think this is so important for you as a Christian and us as a church to understand. So that 
It doesn't remain abstract, but it becomes really concrete for us. The answer is found in the glory of God that fills the tent. What do you mean, Brian? I mean, this is where we need to learn to stitch sermons together one week to the next. What did we learn in Exodus 33 and 34 about the glory of God? And witnessing it, how did Moses respond? We learned that at his core, God is a God of the cross. Do you remember that? That's at the very center of his glory. We learned that the Lord is not just predisposed, but eternally disposed to save. Not the worthy, but the ungodly. The sinner. We heard of a sovereign grace that wills to draw sinners into the goodness of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That, in great measure, is His glory. And what we're seeing here is that that glory, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but also just, that glory has filled the tent. That glory Seen, defined, is what freed Moses to believe God for pardon. Oh Lord, forgive us our sins. Take this stiff-necked people as your inheritance. Please don't leave us. Go with us. That now dwells within the veil. And it does two things at once. <laughs> it puts the sinner out, as we see with Moses, but not without inviting the sinner to take God's way back in. It says, God is in this place. Beware. And also, still, draw near. It's incredible. I should tell you, what we covered last week was actually an interruption of what otherwise would have been 13 chapters on all the provisions for meeting with God within the tent. And those provisions are an overflow of the glory of God. Out of His glory, grace. Out of His glory, mercy. Out of His glory, forgiveness for meeting with God. So, you had the ark, and you had the table, and you had the lampstand, and you had the veil, and behind the veil you had the mercy seat, and you had the priesthood, and you had on and on. And all of them, again, are just shadows. They're real things in history, but they're also just shadows of heavenly things. They're all signifying something that Jesus will come into the world and fulfill. At the end of the day, there's only one man who has earned unfettered access to God. There's only one righteous one. There's only one able to enter and abide for all of eternity. So in the grand scheme of things, Moses is unable to re-enter here so that you and I would look to the only one who is able to to enter and stay, because that person is able then to bring a host of sinners with him into the presence of God. Before we develop that, let's just dip our toes in this. We're seeing that God has made a way for sinners to meet with Him. The tent of meeting is fairly explicit about that. It's not the final setup, 
but it's a gracious setup nonetheless that the God we should long to know with all our hearts invites us to know Him and then He makes every provision for knowing Him. So Moses now continues. From meeting the God who dwells among us to following Him once you've met Him. Once let in, God intends to always lead us on. In a way, the end of Exodus begins to explore the idea that we know as discipleship. And the aspect of discipleship that becomes prominent in the passage is divine visibility. We love that here. Visible. Visibility. Visible church. Visible Christians. Visible God, right? The text is what? It's about watching the cloud, is what it says. Seeing the fire and going wherever God leads. Beloved, it is hard to become what you very seldom behold. It is hard to follow what your eyes find hard to track. Okay? And agreeable to that, Moses tells us plainly, beginning in verse 36. He says, just so we know it, that throughout all their journeys, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if not, they didn't. Because the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And then he reemphasizes, double down, throughout all their journeys. Verse 38. And so the lessons begin to unfold. God dwelled visibly among them. He was their ever-present guide. You might say he left the lights on for them. And he never, ever forsook them. Can you imagine the sight? Of God in the tent? I'd hope so because you've seen more and better. But seeing as they did was either, I think, a danger or a delight, depending as always upon the condition of the heart. As we learn from so many of them, if the heart is dead, if the heart is blind, it doesn't matter what spectacle the Lord shows you. Jesus, you remember this in John 6? Jesus turned a little bitty bit of food into a national banquet. And He did it in the wilderness but the people wanting more were ultimately dissatisfied with the spectacle He gave. And when the more He offered them was Himself, virtually all of them departed. Seeing is not believing. So, Christian... You need to be careful of Christian subcultures that want everything except Christ. Everything except Jesus. Spectacles are forged, and it's very alluring. We love spectacles. It's also very, very dangerous insofar as the spectacle is man rather than God-centered. You see? Moses here, he gives no attention to man. Either a man or the spectacles of men. He fixes our eyes as their eyes were fixed on the tabernacling God. He's the spectacle. He's the chief shepherd out in front, leading his people all the way home. And so their undying attention belongs to him and to him alone. And as that's the case, what we see in the passage is that the wilderness, now think on this, 
Because a lot of times I think we think the promised land is where we, you know, you can be discipled in the promised land with the milk and the honey and all the stuff is flowing. The wilderness becomes a training ground for God's people. Will they live by faith? Or I'll ask it like this. Will they live by the revealed will of God? Whenever He gets up, will they get up? Whenever He moves forward, will they go with Him? Whenever He circles back around, will they go with Him? Whenever He settles, are they going to settle? Will they believe the best about God? Will they believe He knows where He is going? (laughs) Will they believe that He knows where He's taking them? Will they believe that He knows what He is doing and follow Him? Will they trust God's leadership? Will they trust the glory that's on display? Knowing all the grace that He has afforded them in the past to get them where they are, will they live by faith in grace to come? To get them all the way home. Do you hear the relevancy in all of that? For our journey in this wilderness. I don't know what you think about your spiritual health or walk with God right now, but why do we fall behind sometimes? Why do we lag behind those that are really pressing hard after Christ? Why do we get out over our skis? I know that we're in the south. Some of us like to go north or wherever. There's snow. If you've ever gone skiing and gotten out over your skis, you know. And then you're dead. Okay? Why, why do we fashion golden calves? You trace with Israel through the wilderness. Why do serpents come into the camp and bite them? Why? Why do rebellions against God's leadership, like we see in Korah's rebellion, why do those occur? Why do the best of us oppose good shepherds? Why do we need the zeal of Phineas to thwart the Lord's plagues against His people? Why might we succumb as we're in this wilderness? Why might we succumb here and there to sorrow and depression and anxiety and worry and it just drives us crazy? Why do we find ourselves wandering around in the wilderness more than we find ourselves journeying ahead to the promised land? Because we stop doing what the grace of Moses says Israel did. We stop letting God lead us. We no longer stand amazed in the presence. You think I'm going to say Jesus the Nazarene? That's coming. But here I'll just say, we no longer stand amazed in the presence of the tabernacling God. We tire of His glory. And we see nothing so spectacular about His grace. And so how essential then that you and I do all that we can, we utilize all the means of grace we can, both day and night, to keep our eyes fixed on the tent of meeting. We're at the end of a year. How has your devotion been to God this year? Are you more 
affectionate towards Him? Are you warmer in your heart? Do you know Him better and love Him better? Do you see more of Him than you did at the beginning of the year? And do you love what you see? Dear ones, theology is not impractical. For our journey home, and in this present wilderness, there is nothing more practical than seeing God as He has revealed Himself in the Word of God, and again, loving the God that you see. So that you live and move and breathe by that vision of Him. Exodus ends with God having made a way to dwell among His people, moving forward, and His people living in light of it. Okay. Let's come out of the shadows. The Bible presents a true story with real progress. And one theme that becomes increasingly prominent and down to earth is the tent of meeting. And as I said, there's this original that pre-exists the creation of this world. That was what God showed Moses. Okay? And there's the final that we call the new creation. And that'll go on forever after this world is over. And in between, in this fallen world right now, we get, in the Bible, progressive versions of heaven on earth. Progressive iterations of the tent. Okay? So, in the Old Testament, you have the Garden of Eden. You have the tent of meeting. You have the temple in Jerusalem. You have the promised land. It's all doing that. And then you come to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, all of that comes to a head in Jesus Christ and His church and His, here's our word again, visible churches. So, if I can have us just fix the gaze of our souls on Jesus to start with. You may recall what Jesus said of Himself in John chapter 2, verse 19. There He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus understands Himself to be the temple of God. Whatever came before me, that's done. I'm the new version. I'm the update. Jesus understands Himself as the temple of God. And so John then makes this amazing statement in John chapter 1, verse 14, which Jenny read for us at the beginning of our service. He's been talking about the Word of God. John's been talking about the Word of God as the Word who is God. And then he says this, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, filled the temple, full of grace and truth. You think John's been reading Exodus? And finding it all fulfilled in a person? It's incredible. So, when we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating something most spectacular. 
We're celebrating the incarnation. And with it, a shift out of the shadows and into the substantive light of the Son of God. The tent of meeting, listen now, the tent of meeting pointed ahead to the time when He would come down, put on flesh, and dwell among us. More marvelous still, again the writer of Hebrews, he claims, this always blows my mind, he claims that Christ's flesh was the veil separating us from God. Yeah. Okay. And what it means is that as you have eyes to see it, you see the presence of God in the man Jesus Christ. He's in Him. Okay? You see Jesus, you see the glory of God. You lay your eyes on Jesus, you see that heart of God. You see the God who's made a way to dwell among His people. You see the testimony of God within the ark. And the manna too. I am the bread of life. You see the lampstand, the light of the world. You see the table of fellowship. And atop the table of fellowship, you see again that bread of life. You see the seat of mercy, the mercy seat. And you see the one who is seated upon it. When you see Jesus, you see the great high priest. You see the Lamb of God. And you look long enough, you see the altar upon which He gave His life for us. Speaking of which, what happened when His flesh, the veil, was torn? What happened when Jesus had made atonement for our sins? What happened when He finished the work and died? Three veils were torn together. His, like His flesh, was torn. And you know that the one that was in the temple in Jerusalem, what happened to that one? Torn. And as we know that that was a shadow of a heavenly reality, a third veil was torn. It's a great mystery. The veil in heaven that separated God from us was torn. (laughs) Soon as Jesus had atoned for us, the way for us back into God was opened wide. I said, uh, no one can abide in heaven but the one of no sin. Never sinned. And what I want you to hear this morning, Christian, is that that is how God now accounts you because of Jesus. If you are in Christ, God has now counted you as Christ. You're forgiven of your sins. You are justified. You are counted righteous. Having believed on Christ, you have been welcomed into God such that you'll never be put out. As a friend, listen, that once upon a time is not so far off. How will it go for you when you meet with God? What we're hearing is that it's only Jesus who can make that a meeting that your soul looks forward to. Without Him, even Moses is out. But by Jesus, even you can enter in.
So what I want you to hear is that grace, again, pouring out of the glory of God, abounds even for the chief of sinners. Yeah, His glory comes and it puts you out, but His glory also comes and invites you back in. And God is looking at you, the sinner, this morning and saying, come on, the call is yours, whether you will enter or not through faith in Jesus Christ. But church, what about us today? Do we understand what Christ has made us? I've been one of the pastors here for four years this December. This is probably one of the main things that we've been laboring for the entire time. Do we understand what Christ has made us? Not just you as an individual Christian, but us as a church. Do we understand what He, the temple, was destroyed to raise up? Do you know that in Jesus, God not only dwelt among us, but that through Him, He now indwells a people, indwells a congregation, indwells you and me, us together. Do you get that the great, the seminal display of God between now and the new creation is Christ in you. That it's us in Christ. People want to know, I want to see God. Show me God. Where's the tent of meeting today that I might lay eyes on God and His glory and His grace. Where can I meet Him? What would you say? You need to get outside more. Be one with nature. Oh, you've got to go to the Andrew Peterson concert. It is a spectacle. It is powerful. Which it is. You gotta read this book, gentle and lowly. It's a classic. You gotta read this book. You need to listen to this podcast. You need to meet with this pastor. You need to meet with this person, which is all well and fine. Or, first and foremost, is it? Why don't you come in among my church? Amid all the mess, and there's a lot of mess, amid all the mistakes, and many of those, amid all the ups and all the downs, amid all of our imperfections, yet I promise you, God is really among this people. We should be able to say that. That's our prayer, that is our hope here. But how can it stay a reality? I'd say that it's as basic, however embattled, as keeping our eyes on the tent. It's undistracted discipleship. Where we are devoted to being a God-centered, Christ-saturated, word-affixed, gospel-displaying church. The veil that's over people's hearts, by God's grace, it'll be torn. They'll come in among us, either here or elsewhere. We're out there together. And the only way that they will fail to see the saving glory of God is by being blind of heart. And what I'm wanting for us is to be the kind of church, the kind of congregation, the kind of people who grant no other cause but that. They're blind of heart. That we be the kind of people that don't put any blinders up. 
In other words, having met God, let's be a people who follow Him. One step at a time, brick by living brick. Let's be a people where outsiders can see and come to meet Jesus. The day is coming, so hear this, maybe this is the the great thing that you hear. The day is coming when this wilderness will be over. We will be home and we will see Him with our eyes. Okay? But until then, we've got to learn to live by faith among a people who seeing Him, show Him. And we just rest on His promise. I will be with you. Always. Even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we leave it to You. You are the living God. Your Word is a living and active Word. Would you please make it to live and act powerfully in each one of us? And would you build for yourself a people here that others just come in and they look around and what they see is Christ power of the gospel, glory and grace. Do it for your fame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.